Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. Last week, we started a new study. Uh, We started looking at some Old Testament stories. And we may keep this up for the next few weeks. Uh, I, I know at least next week and um, the week after, um, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So hopefully, last week wasn't uh, uh, too boring for you guys and you enjoyed it. Um, but uh, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter three this evening. Uh, just the first fifteen verses. We're going to be breaking it down into a few different sections. And as always, we've got our notes on our Foundations Church app. If to uh, download that, you can keep up with what's going on, and you can see all the cool stuff that we've got going on, look at our connect groups. You can check out the sermon uh, notes from Sunday um, and past uh, sermon series as well. You can uh, watch online. You can do all kinds of cool things through our app. We put, make sure to put our midweek notes on there um, thanks to some uh, suggestions from some people in here. Um, we also have note cards and pins in the back, but uh, uh, we'll have the notes on the screen behind me as well. But if you got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read the first uh, six verses here it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to uh, Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. When Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Uh, We come to this pretty well-known story about God appearing to Moses in a burning bush. Um, People that aren't really familiar or or hardly, you know, uh, darken the doors of a a church have, have this idea of like this burning bush experience, right? It's, it's kind of this phrase that you may hear uh, even in non-church circles. And this is uh, what, where it's out of, is Exodus chapter three. Um, at this point in his life, Moses is about 80 years old. Um, 40 years ago, uh, not today, but 40 years ago in Moses' life, he was um, living the high life. He was living his best life. He was uh, living in the house of Pharaoh. He was enjoying the benefits of royalty, and uh, he fled Egypt. Anyone know why he fled Egypt? Yeah, he killed a guy. Yeah. Um, he saw a, uh, an Egyptian soldier um, beating a, uh, a Hebrew slave, and he intervened and uh, killed the guy. And then the next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting, um, and he steps in. They're like, oh, you're going to kill us too? And, he's, and he realizes that uh, his crime wasn't, uh, wasn't so secretive after all. So he, he runs, he flees. And he ends up in this foreign land uh, doing the work of, uh, that, that a boy could do. This 80-year-old man um, taking care of sheep that aren't even his own. There's his, father, there's his father-in-laws. And he's living this life of almost uh, insignificance. Just in another land, he's married, has some kids, just being a shepherd, just doing a shepherd thing. He's out doing his shepherdly duty. And God calls him uh, to lead his people out of Egypt. And as I'm reading this, and I'm looking at the timeline here, when Moses leaves and how old he is, you know, it would, it would seem, it would make sense. I'm, I'm 37. Um, 
still feel pretty energetic. Um, it would make sense that, uh, that Moses would leave, right? He's scared. But then maybe five, 10 years later, you know, it makes sense. He comes back spry, 50-year-old man, full of energy, ready to lead God's people out of Egypt. But it's interesting um, that God had Moses in this waiting period for 40 years. Um, and and I, I think it, there might be some significance to this because, you know, if, if Moses comes and he's 50 years old, he's 45 years old, whatever, and he's, he's still pretty strong and healthy and ready to go, you may think that Moses may think there is some ability in and of himself, that there's this, this hey, I can, I can lead these people. But at this age, he's, he's like, what? No, I don't know. Um, but 2 Corinthians 4.7 tells us this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And this idea that Moses is this older man up in age and, and this, this idea of us being clay pots, these cheap, breakable, expendable pots that are holding this infinite value, this um, incredible hope, this incredible strength that doesn't belong to us, but belongs to God. And this idea that Moses is older, God's like, hey, I am going to work through you. Um, so there's nothing to brag about in and of yourself, but it's my power working through you. Um, that God used this fragile jar of clay to show that his, it was him that was doing the work, um, not Moses. Because like I said, if Moses was 50, you know, had this energy, he'd be like, yeah, like, it's, it's God, but there's, there's, some, there's a little bit bigger left in me, ready to go. Um, but Moses uh, is in this insignificant time, so God can use him at the right time. When God calls Moses, he tells him to what? To take off his sandals because the place that he's coming to is, is holy ground. Um, it's really interesting to note that this is the first use of the word holy that we see in the Bible. Um, that you see, uh, you see a, a very similar situation when Joshua, Moses' um, successor, comes in Joshua chapter 5, where uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua as they're about to take the city of Jericho, and um, the angel has a sword drawn, and Joshua's like, are you friend or foe? What's going on? And the angel tells him to remove his sandals and, um, because the ground that he's standing on is holy. But you, you have um, this incredible encounter where we don't know a whole lot about the holiness of God. And you've got to understand that um, we're reading it after the fact. We're, we're reading the whole story. Moses is living this out. And, and so there's no real understanding, at least in the Bible, that, that there's this holiness aspect of God. Um, and it made such an impact on Moses that as he is uh, writing this victory song in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, that he makes sure to mention the holiness. It says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and wonders? And it blows my mind that you've got in Genesis 12, 8, you've got Abraham building an, uh, an altar to God, calling on the name of the Lord. Um, you've got in Genesis 26, 25, you've got Isaac building an altar, calling on the name of the Lord. You've got Jacob in Genesis 35, 7, um, building an altar, calling on the name of the Lord. But in none of these instances, is the word holy ever used, right? A lot of times we think of, of holy as this really special place, right? That, that we come into church and it's a holy ground, but God says, hey, it's not so much of, of where the, the location is, but it's more so where I am. Um, that this, this desert, he's in a desert, he's on a mountain. There was, Moses didn't build a thing. He sees this bush that is burning and God says, hey, the place where you are standing is holy ground. Why? Because I'm holy, because I'm here. 
Um, now, does that mean that the place, the altar that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob built wasn't holy? I don't know, but the Bible doesn't say it is. But it says that this place, seemingly insignificant, is holy. Um, and and this, this should um, cause us to pause because God is, what he's telling Moses to do is, hey, don't enter this area thoughtlessly or recklessly, you know, just strolling in, whistling and ready to go. But he says, hey, understand that what is happening here is sacred, that it's set apart. And as we enter into church, um, we should come in with this understanding of what we are about to do. Now, this building is awesome. Um, the, the, it's, it's beautiful. I love the way it looks. I love the openness. I love the energy in the lobby in between services and people hanging out. But but tonight, when we leave and we lock up, it's just a building, right? If, if tornado comes and blows it down, it's going to be really frustrating. Um, but insurance will cover it, and we'll rebuild, and we'll make do. But what makes it holy is when God's people come into the building. Um, what makes it holy is when we gather together, um, lifting up our voices in prayer to a holy God. And so if we come into church, I think we need to approach it in the way that, that God is telling Moses, not that we're taking off our shoes, but that we come in very thoughtfully and respectfully, giving God the honor and the glory and the reverence that he is due, um, understanding that it is, God is still holy. Um, we look in the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation, where these angels, the, the cherubim and the seraphim, are, are shouting back and forth to one another. Where They're not shouting exciting, 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 or fun, 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 but they're shouting holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. That this is what God is, that he is a holy God. And so as we come in to worship a holy God, that our hearts should come in with that, that mindset and that attitude of saying, hey, you know, church is awesome. I love it, but I'm also understanding the reverence and the, the, the respect that, is, that God is due, um, the honor that he is due. But it's not just when we come into church, but it's our lives as well. Um, Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. First Peter 2, 9, Peter tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a what? A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That God calls out to Moses, letting him know that the ground that he is walking on is holy. Um, but now, now it's, it's our lives that are called to, be, to live holy lives. And so we don't just enter worship and church with this reverence, but we approach our lives with this idea of that I am a holy nation, that, that God tells Moses to remove his sandals. Hey, think about what's going on. Understand that this is a set-apart era. We are a set-apart people. We are called to live a set-apart life. Um, and, and Moses, and here's the, the, the contrast, the comparison and contrast. Um, we see this insignificant place in the desert um, that is made holy because of God's presence. Um, now we are made holy because of what Christ has done for us. Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. Um, but 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, because of, him, you are, uh, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus and became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That we no longer have to hide our face, but we can approach God boldly, go before the throne with boldness because of Christ. Um, that if we've expressed the saving faith in Jesus and the work he did on the cross, we don't have to hide our face. That we still approach with honor and respect and not flippantly, but we can come boldly um, before God because of what, uh, what Christ did. Um, 
Moses has been exiled from Egypt. He's estranged from his uh, fellow Israelites. He's in a foreign country. But God makes sure to remind him that he is still a child of the promise. Um, that he tells him uh, this. He says, um, let me get here. In, uh, in verse 6, he said, I am the God of who? Your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That Moses had been separated from his from his family, his whole life, that he grew up an Egyptian, right? That he was, um, we talked about names last week and the significance they played. The name Moses means to be drawn out, that he was drawn out, um, that he was raised in the house of Pharaoh, that he leaves and goes to this foreign land, um, but he's still a Hebrew. He's still a child of the promise. And God says, hey, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I made a covenant with Abraham, and I'm intending to honor that covenant and you are included in that, in that covenant. And so God's reminding him of who he is um, through this encounter. Then we get to verse seven. And this says, the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to the land, uh, to a, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So in this encounter on Mount Sinai, we have a couple of firsts. Um, we see this first look at the word holiness, right? And that we just talked about. Um, we see this, this separation between God and humanity, between the creator and the creation. Um, this distinction that God and, and, that, and, God and man, um, his, his deity um, and our humanity. You see this difference here. Uh, Hosea 11.9, uh, God says, for I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst, right? So there's this Clear distinction here. Um, but then another first is this, that God calls Israel my people. Um, that this is the first time that they see God call them my people. Now, they had been in Egypt for, for several years. Um, but remember, they weren't in Egypt. They weren't enslaved the entire time they were there. That they enjoyed prosperity. That they were multiplying. They were succeeding. They were thriving um, because of Joseph, right? Joseph had uh, been faithful. God had used him. God was with Joseph. He was second in command. And so when there's this famine, uh, Joseph brings his family over. They live in Egypt. They thrive there. But then Joseph dies. And the king that was, uh, the Pharaoh that was overseeing them and that was allowing this to happen, he dies. And another king arises. And you've got uh, this king who didn't know Joseph. And he saw these foreigners as a threat, that if there were to be a, a battle, that they could join the other side and overtake him because there were so many of them. And so he makes uh, a decree to... Um, enslave them and entrap them. And, and we think that maybe this happened over hundreds of years. This was a pretty quick turnaround. It wasn't like you have one generation that just knows prosperity and then it slowly trickles. No, it's like you have people that are, that are living well and then next thing they know, they're enslaved and they're burdened and they're beaten down. And, and we see in Exodus 2 where they are starting to grow frustrated with their situation, where they begin to cry out to God in the end of Exodus 2, we see that the cries of, of the Israelites reach up to God. 
um, and you see four things. You see that God heard, that God remembered, that he saw, and that he took notice. That, he, that these cries aren't going unanswered. Um, and it's signaling that God is, is about to do something, that he heard, he sees, he remembers, and he takes notice. Um, and a lot of times we read the Old Testament and we may not think about the significance or this application to us. Um, and I'll say it before I'll say it again, that the Bible was not written to us. Um, ex- the book of Exodus was not written to Michael Ballard in 2023. Um, but we can pull these biblical truths out of the Old Testament, out of the New Testament. And, and we got to make sure that as we are reading um, the story of the Israelites, as we're reading the Old Testament, that we don't put ourselves in the position of the hero. Because a lot of times the hero is a type of Christ. It is representative of Christ. Um, you know, in this situation, Moses is the mediator between the nation of Israel and God, that he is the one that goes before God on their behalf. Um, if we fast forward to the New Testament, who is that mediator between God and us? Who is that? Jesus. It's not us. And so we've got to make sure you can't be like, just channel your inner Moses, right? Like we've got to make sure that we, that we properly understand this. Um, and we always talk about that we, we look for Christ in the Old Testament. And so you see Christ in this, uh, in this example of Moses. He is the mediator between God and the people of Israel. First um, Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Um, there's other connections to Jesus and Moses. Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 3, the first part of it. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. What? Moses is like on the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament, and Jesus is counted as uh, having more glory, more worth than Moses. John chapter 5, verse 45 through 47, this is Jesus talking. Don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So if we're looking for our role in the Old Testament, it's not the hero, but very often, uh, we would identify more along the lines of the, of the nation of Israel, that this is, this is our counterpart in the Old Testament, that, um, that, that we, we see the cycle where we, we know God, but we fall away from God, and God has sent us a Savior. Um, we talked about it, I think, in like our very first week, but if exegesis is this critical interpretation of the Word of God, the studying of the Word of God, pulling out what God is speaking to us, the proper studying of the Word of God, exegesis, um, then putting ourselves at the center of the gospel is uh, like narcissism. That, it, that it's like this idea of like putting me um, as the hero. And we do this a lot when we talk about David, right? David is another type of Christ in the Bible. Um, just so we're, we're, again, we're the Israelites that are scared of the giant and we need a savior. And so we have to understand um, our place. And so we're looking at this story. Okay, so what's our place in the story? Our place is that um, we are crying out to God for help. Um, we are in need of rescue. We are in need of a savior. God sends Moses to the Egyptians. God sent Christ to save us and to rescue us. Um, and that God answers his people's prayers in his perfect timing. But even the Israelites, when Moses said, hey, I'm going to rescue, I'm going to, you know, God has sent me, they mock him. And when he takes them out of Egypt and they get to the Red Sea, they're like, we should have stayed in Egypt, that they still didn't understand what was going on. And we do this a lot. When we pray for an answer and God gives us an answer or, or answers our prayers in a way that we don't like, and we're like, God, are you even listening? He's like, I'm, here is your answer right here. Like, yeah, but I didn't really expect it to be like this. Again, we're the nation of Israel not understanding what God is doing for us. Um, but we see Moses 
even, even though he is a type of Christ, he's still human. He's not perfect. He kind of doubts what God is doing. He's like, who am I that, that I should go before Pharaoh? Like, wh- what am I? And God doesn't tell him, oh, you're strong, you're capable, you're awesome. No, no, what's God say? He says, I'll be with you. He says, I'll be with you. Let's not focus on who you are. Let's not focus on your inadequacies, but I will be with you. Can we think of an instance in the New Testament where something very similar is said to the disciples? Matthew 28, Jesus is about to leave and Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that whenever God calls us to do something, he is not leaving us. When God called Moses to rescue the Israelites, he didn't just pat him on the back and be like, go get him, tiger, catch you on the flip side, right? He said, no, 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 I am with you. I am with you. We all, followers of Christ, have been given this challenge, this call. Um, and, and Jesus didn't say, all right, cool, I'll catch you in heaven. He said, no, 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 I'm with you to the very end of the age, that he's not leaving his children, that he is there with us every step of the way. Again, we talked about, we're like, well, who am I? We're, we're fragile clay pots that God has put this power inside of so that we can magnify him. Why? Because I'm inadequate. I'm nothing. But seeing that God is working through me gives him the glory, that God can use a, a dummy like me, right? A sinner like me points all to the glory and power of him, nothing in me. And this is what God is doing in Moses. Who, are, who, are, who am I? You're nothing, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be working through you. We get to this last section, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the interaction that I really wanted to get to, but we kind of had to establish what was going on first um, to get to this point. Uh, And we've probably heard this preached and and read it a bunch, um, but there's this really interesting interaction between God and Moses here, where God, or Moses wants to know God's name. And I'm not 100% sure, but I think Moses is asking a very practical question. Um, and the reason I think it's practical is because the, the Israelites are living in Egypt, and the Egyptians are a polytheistic culture, which means they serve multiple gods. Um, you've got Ra, the god of the sun. You've got Anubis, the god of the dead. And, and I was reading, trying to figure out, they had over 1,400 gods that they were worshiping. And so Moses is like, okay, what's your name? Like, we got to understand, like, if I just say God, it's like, are you the god of the sun? Are you the god of the dead? Are you god of the war? Like, what, what god? And God answers him in this incredible way. This powerful response says, I am who I am. I am is sending you. God says, I am who I am. And Moses asks for his name and God doesn't give him his name just yet. What he is doing here is he's revealing, um, I guess his character. He's revealing this being about him. Uh, Instead of just saying, yeah, my name is this, he's describing who he is because the phrase I am speaks to this eternal power this unchanging characteristic of God. Um, you may hear these, these words of uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, or immutable, um, unchanging. 
but God is describing himself as being self-existent, um, that he is without beginning and he is without end. God is letting Moses know that there was never a time where he wasn't. And we read this in Revelation twenty-two thirteen: I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Uh, James 1, 17 talks about the, the unchanging nature of God, where he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation due, or no shadow due to change. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I am who I am. You can't give me any information I don't already know. I can't become more holy. Um, none of my perfections can be subtracted to or added uh, to. I am the existing one that God is giving Moses who he is. That when, you, hey, see all these other Egyptian gods? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Not even the same ballpark. Not in the same universe. But I am um, above all and before all and around all. And if God is I am, let me ask you this. Does he need anything? No. No, no, no. And so here's where I need to apologize because, um, because at times I will say this. Um, I'll say something like, God needs you to do X. Um, God doesn't need anything from us. Um, if nuclear war broke out tomorrow and every human was wiped from the face of the earth, God would still be I am, um, that he is unchanged. Job 34, 14 through 15, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. That God... God is going to be God whether we are there or not. Um, and so he doesn't need anything from us. Well, what about uh, carrying out the great, he needs us to carry out the great commission. No, he doesn't. He doesn't need us to. Are we so arrogant to think that God is going to be limited by what we do or do not do? That God is God. Is God. He is, I am. Um, he is allowing us to work with him. He is, he is calling us to work with him but he does not need anything. Um, it's, it's the other way around. He doesn't need anything from us. We need everything from him. Um, you know, we work for him. We wait for him. He does not, he's not, God's waiting on you. No, he's not. He's not waiting on us. He doesn't need us. He's I am. He's not, uh, I wish you guys would hurry up. No, no, no. He is I am. Um, and so we've got to understand this, that it's, it's not him that needs something from us, but it's us that needs everything from him. And, and like we talked about earlier, that if we are going to call him our master, our Lord, then we have to become his servants as well. He's not working for us, that we are working for him. And he doesn't need us. But in his mercy and in his grace, he has called us to carry out his work. But if the world stopped tomorrow, he would still be existent. He would still be I am. Um, and, and so God is establishing who he is and how vastly different he is from any of these Egyptian gods, these little G gods. Um, and then he gives, I guess, his proper name, if you will. He says, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. Then he says, tell them the Lord, your God, has sent you. Um, the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Hebrew um, it's Yahweh, the existing one. Um, this name comes out of uh, the I am statements. Um, I think we put it, hey, Fish, can you move that up so we can get that on the screen so they can see it? Um, so he's working on that. But when he says I am, it's Hebrew for uh, Hayah, uh, which I'm a little rusty on my Hebrew, and by rusty means I don't know any of it. Um, but um, I am is this Hayah 
And so when we sing um, hallelujah, um, it, it, we're literally, it's this, this yah is shortened for Yehovah or Yahweh, um, Jehovah. And so we're literally singing praise Yahweh, right? God be praised. Um, but we see I am is to exist. Um, Yahweh is this idea of the existing one. So he's like giving his proper name here. Um, and to be fair, we aren't really 100% sure how this is pronounced uh, in, in ancient Hebrew. It's, it's a consonant only language. Um, and, and so the, you know, we, we see God's name translated in the Hebrew as um, YHWH, um, but there's no real clear picture of how this is pronounced. And a lot of times the Jewish people were so concerned with taking the Lord's name in vain, of mispronouncing his name, that they would, they'd get there, they'd substitute it for Adonai, which is just Lord, because like we don't want to mispronounce Yahweh. Um, but either way, the truth remains that the Lord is I am. Um, that this name Lord, when you see it in, in, the, in the older New Testament where it's uh, capital L and then like the small uppercase letters, that is um, Jehovah. And this is the, like the holiest name for God in the Old Testament. Um, this is the way that he is referred to. I think uh, I saw that he's referred to Lord over 6,500 times this way in the Old Testament. You remember last week I mentioned it earlier where we talked about the importance and significance of names um, and how oftentimes a person's name would play out in their character uh, as we read through the Old Testament. Here we are given not just another name, but the highest name. Um, the, the name that's that at, at this name that every knee will bow, that this is the highest name, the, the name of Yahweh, the name of Lord, the existing one, um, I am. And a lot of times, you know, we, we've talked about this, I think last semester, where we talked about taking the Lord's name in vain. I think as we were talking about even the Lord's prayer, um, hallowed be your name, that, that we approach the name of God with reverence. Um, and a lot of people will be like, use GD or we'll use um, Jesus Christ in a, in a very flippant and disrespectful name. But um, as I was reading this, you know, I, I think how many times I say, oh, Lord, you know, oh, Lord. I'm like, oh, wow. Like, this is a, this is a, a very um, holy name, a very uh, distinguished name that God gives, that it is his proper name. And so um, as we are using this, two things to remember that we don't use it flippantly. Um, we talk about taking the Lord's name in vain, that we take all the names of the Lord and don't take them in vain. But also as we use the name Lord, as we pray Lord, that we understand that he is still I am, that he still is self-existing, that he still is all powerful and everything. And so we come before him. If he was I am to Moses, he is still I am to us, that he is still the existing one. Um, and so it's, uh, it's amazing that this is the God that we get to serve. Um, the God that called Moses through a burning bush is the same God that is calling us to chase after him, to follow after him. And we see this in Moses where God is this, this fragile, um, broken man um, and God using these uh, wildly insufficient um, and, and unworthy people. Sorry, I hope you're not offended. Um, but God is using us, that he has entrusted us um, he doesn't need us, but through his grace and love and mercy, he has entrusted us to carry out his work. So what do we do? We say, God, I'm, I'm nothing. He says, you're right. You're right. But through me, I'm with you. And that's what you need. That I am. I am what? I am everything. I am everything. God, I'm so, in, I'm, I'm so ineffective. Well, I'm effective. God, I'm so weak. Well, I, I'm powerful. God, I'm so ignorant. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I, I got you covered there right? That I am everything. 
And so as we reading these stories in the Old Testament, you know, a lot of times we just look at them and we're like, these are really cool Bible stories. They do have a practical application to our lives today as followers of Christ. Um, and so we can't miss the significance of that as we are going through the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this evening. God, thanking you for your word. Thanking you that, uh, God, even though um, this book was written thousands of years ago, God, that it still is true today um, as the moment um, these authors, inspired by your Holy Spirit, pen the words um, so many years ago. God, I pray that you would help us use these truths, God, to live out these truths, God, to, to transform us and to change us into the people you have called us to be. God, we thank you that it's not by our strength or our power, but it's by your power um, that we're able to carry out the call that you have put in our lives. God, help us walk in a way that honors you and glorifies you in all that we do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, well, thank you guys for being here. Uh, if you guys want, uh, it's 729. If you want to group up and pray together, um, just want to give you guys some time to do that, some time to uh, lift each other up in prayer, share one another's burdens, and, uh, and you know, just get some time of fellowship. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv.